the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar, beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Thanks, Carol. Good evening, friends. Uh, let me add my welcome to Tim's earlier on. My name's Simon, one of the pastoral team here, and it really is a, a great privilege to be opening God's Word together with you. As we sit under God's Word together, let me pray for us. Loving Heavenly Father, in recent weeks we've just celebrated Christmas, and the wonderful fact that that baby laid in a manger now sits enthroned on high. So tonight we pray that you would Help us to listen to him with humility and indeed in the week and, and the year to come to live for his glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, on the leaflet that you received at the door, uh, you'll see that there's a very simple outline of where we're headed, um, but there's also a slightly odd sermon title to it. Jesus and his kingdom, that's nothing to sneer at. Now, I don't know if you know that kind of quaint but classic Aussie slang phrase, that's nothing to sneer at. It's um, a classic kind of understated Aussie slang as a way of saying, oh, that's, that's kind of impressive, or that's something to take seriously. Let me give you a couple of examples to sort of see how it works. It can be a bit lighthearted. So, you know, picture a couple of friends chatting, someone, one of them's sharing that they've just been given some great tickets. I don't know, tickets to whatever you think would be great to have free tickets to an amazing concert, that awesome grand final, whatever it is. And their friend says, oh, that's nothing to sneer at, which would be to say, that's pretty great. Different scenario notches it up a little bit, two mates down at the pub, one of them's just been offered a job and he's sharing the details, the ins and outs with his friend who says to him, oh mate, that's nothing to sneer at, 
which would be to say, well, that's worth seriously considering. Then even further, a little bit more seriously, dining room table, mum and dad sitting down with their young adult son who's just opened the mail to find that he's got a speeding fine in dad's car. And he's joking around about it, trying to make light of it. Mum says, son, that's nothing to sneer at, which would be to say, you need to take this seriously. Well, it's classic Aussie slang, but it actually sums up the big idea of this passage that we've just read about. Jesus and his kingdom, that's nothing to sneer at. Now, I don't know whether it really stood out to you like that uh, when we read it. In fact, for many of us, when we come to this passage, it feels like we've just got a couple of quite random sort of ideas and then a really vivid parable. And we kind of think, okay, let's jump to the parable. That's where the action is. Actually, I want us to spend a little bit of time setting the context to see who Jesus is talking to, what he's talking about, so that we can see how this fits together. Because it's helpful for us to remember, we're reading Luke's Gospel, and Luke said right at the start, in fact, I've, I've got it on the screen for you, right at the start of his Gospel, Luke explained to his friend Theophilus, who he was writing this for, that he was setting out this in very careful order. I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And what we'll see is that Luke is carefully recording for us a warning, a warning not to sneer at Jesus and his kingdom, to take him very seriously. This passage is actually a really sober warning for us all, not to harden our hearts against God, or to treat him as trivial, not to think that we can live one way in front of people and yet, kind of in our hearts, sneer at Jesus. And I think as we start into a new year, it's a really wonderful invitation for us all to reflect on the kind of people that we want to be in 2022. So to help us to see how this passage fits together and what God's saying to us, we do need to spend a couple of minutes to do that, to to put it in context. So, remember, um, since Luke chapter 9, we've been walking with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's been calling people to follow him, he's been challenging people who reject him, and all along the way, he's been making his way with clarity to the cross, on his way to being risen from the dead as the resurrected Lord Jesus enthroned in heaven. That's the journey we're on. Last week, the first half of chapter 16, we were really challenged to live this life in light of eternity and in particular in a very practical way thinking about our money and our our possessions. Now at that point, Jesus had been speaking to his disciples but right at the end of last week's passage in verse 14 of chapter 16, just before what's in our leaflet tonight, we we read about another group of people who are listening on. I've put this up on the screen for you because you don't have it in front of you there. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And that's the context of our passage today, with Jesus confronting a group of people who were sneering at him, who didn't like the radical call that he made on their lives and in particular on their wallets. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, Jesus said, but God knows your hearts. And that's what brings us to the, to the opening verse of today's passage with these couple of little sentences that can just seem so out of place. Jesus is responding to those who are sneering at him. And in verse 16, if you read it with me there, he said to them, 
The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. Now, I want to pause and unpack some big ideas here because this verse is obviously very significant for Luke in the way that he wants us to understand Jesus. He refers to it at a few different points in his gospel and then picks up on it in Acts as well. You see, the phrase, the law and the prophets, that's a catch-all term for the Jewish scriptures, what we now know as the Old Testament in our Bibles. The law is actually a lot more than just law, just legislation. It's a reference to the writings of Moses from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets was a way of summing up everything else because the prophets really did a lot more than just telling the future. They were calling people to obey God. And so the phrase, the law and the prophets, was a catch-all description of our Old Testament as God's revelation of himself and his call for people to live under his rule. That's helpful to know. The second thing that's helpful to know is that the John that Jesus refers to here is is John the Baptist. He's the last of the prophets, and he's the one who literally, like physically, pointed to Jesus as he walked past him and, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, as he announced the kingdom of God. This is the one who is bringing the kingdom. And so the shift that people needed to make was to realize that they now lived, in fact, as we do, in the time when the good news of the kingdom of God was being preached. The law and the prophets, they described God's kingdom, they pointed forward to God's kingdom, but now, Jesus was saying, now the kingdom has actually come. And this verse is really important for us to understand that relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament, and the way that he viewed it, what he taught about it, because we see him set out a massive change from the way things were before and the way things are now that he has come. Before, it was the law and the prophets, but now it's the announcement of the kingdom. But Jesus is really clear that as much as there's a big change, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament is useless. It's not as if we just throw it out. That's what he's saying in verse 17. It would be easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for even the smallest part of the law to be deleted. Everything has changed. But the Old Testament remains just as important. Now, I really want us to drill down on this point because I think it's significant to what Jesus is, is teaching us. It's helpful to understand what Jesus said about his connection with the Old Testament at a few different points. And Luke records um, some reflections just after Jesus was risen from the dead in Luke chapter 24. We've got this on the screen for us again. So, Luke sums up a, a conversation that Jesus had with some of his disciples after he'd been risen from the dead, saying that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or just a little later, a few verses later in Luke's gospel, this time Jesus' words to his disciples, he said himself, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. You see, Jesus taught that the Old Testament the law and the prophets as he refers to it here they pointed forward to him explaining who he is what he's doing what he will do the old testament is the promise of which jesus is the fulfillment and that's why we've got to understand how how the bible fits together it's not just an academic exercise it's knowing jesus 
And just as a brief aside, if that's something you'd like to do, I, I came prepared with this little book. You've got the details of, of it in your leaflet, God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. It's excellent reading that's not only kind of intellectually stimulating with lots of kind of, oh, I get it now kind of moments, but actually really encouraging reading. I've actually got four copies to sell if you want to come and see me after the gathering. But here in Luke 16, remember who Jesus is speaking to. The Pharisees, a group of religious leaders who thought of themselves as experts in the law and the prophets. And this was Jesus making a direct challenge to them to help them to understand that there is a massive change going on. Life was now defined by the kingdom of God that was right in their midst. And I think, I think that helps us to start to join the dots to see how verse 18 kind of makes sense. It feels like this massive left turn to now start talking about divorce and remarriage. But it's actually a really great way for Jesus to make his point. You see, if we read more widely in the Gospels, we see that the Pharisees, well, they like to make a show of being really strong in the law. That was their gig. But time and time again, Jesus helps them to see that actually they were pretty soft on divorce. If you're taking notes and you want to do a little bit more reading on that, you could look up Mark chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 5 and 19. But what is surprising when we do that is that Jesus didn't take these, these kind of legal experts back to Old Testament case law and just drill them harder on it. He took them further. He took them deeper than that. He actually really took them to the heart of the matter. The really live issue for them was that they were looking for all kinds of excuses to allow people to divorce so that they would be free to remarry. And Jesus takes them to a much deeper perspective on it than that. A, a radical heart attitude that pursues God's values rather than worldly values. And along the way, each time he did this, Jesus made a really profound claim that actually he is the one who stands at the centre of God's kingdom with the authority to say how life in this kingdom should be lived. Now I want to pause here and just acknowledge that we have very briefly touched on the topic of divorce and remarriage. Jesus speaks pretty directly on it here. But I know it's a topic that can be really painful and, and deeply personal for many and actually not one that we can handle briefly. So we we're not actually going to dwell any longer on it, not because it, it doesn't matter at all, but because it matters so much. But what I want to help us to see here is that Luke, Luke is helping us to see how this was a real issue for Jesus' audience that served as a really challenging example for them to consider the relationship between Jesus and God's kingdom and the integrity that God calls for in his people. But all of that said, if actually this kind of touches a raw nerve for you and it's something that you'd like to talk further on, then please don't hesitate to come and talk with me or indeed any of the pastoral staff afterwards. But at this point, I just want to sum up where we've got to so far as we've kind of set the context. Really, we've only covered three verses, but it's really helpful to understand what Jesus is saying. You see, essentially, we've seen that he is challenging people who like to justify themselves before others, but they've forgotten that God knows their hearts. In particular, he's challenging them to see that the kingdom of God has come and he's the one that stands at the centre of it, the, the one that the whole Old Testament points forward to. If you're going to take it seriously, you have to take him seriously. And Jesus needs them to see that the one that they are sneering at, that they're treating as trivial, as a pain in the neck, actually he is the king who has the authority 
to say how life in God's world should be lived. And then he tells this story that really brings the, home, brings the, the idea, the message home very vividly. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, reading this together. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And that's all we get to find out about this rich man, right? And you're like, purple, uh, not my colour, but I kind of get... No, actually, that's significant. Purple matters, because we used to get in clothes in whatever colour you like, but back then, purple was very hard to make. You can Wikipedia it yourself. Why do kings dress in purple in the old days? Because it was the most expensive colour to make. You had to go and find some obscure little mollusk from the eastern Mediterranean to extract out of... Anyway, big story, but very expensive. And it's kind of like, kind of rocking down the street in Gucci or Prada or whatever you think kind of screams, hey, look at me, I'm important because I'm cashed up. Like, that's, that's kind of the social implication of this. And verse 19 says that this wasn't just his special occasion wardrobe. He dressed like this, ate like this every day. But in contrast, in verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. What a tragic, pitiful kind of contrast. Just a couple of things, uh, many things that we could notice. Did you, did you notice that the beggar doesn't lay himself down? He needs other people to lay him, so lay him down at the rich man's gate, just, just hoping he can get some charity. The pain of his poverty is seen in these sores that he's covered in. And, and we don't actually know whether he got to eat any of those crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He just longed to. But perhaps more than anything, he is so low, he is so overlooked by everyone that no one even stopped the dogs from licking his sores. And I think we're meant to kind of grimace at a description like that. It's, it's a picture of a man treated even lower than the dog's. And yet Lazarus is the one who is shown the honour of being named. Fun fact for you, Bible trivia. He is the only character in all of Jesus' parables who is given the honour of being named. And I think that simple detail just highlights something of the respect that God has for all people. It's an illustration of, of what Jesus summed up when he said to those Pharisees in verse 15 from last week's passage, they loved money, but God doesn't value what people value. He does not esteem wealth or overlook the poor in the way the world does. So that's the description of the rich man and Lazarus in this life, but then Jesus tells the story of how their fortunes are reversed in death. And this is actually where the real action of this story comes, where all of the dialogue happens. It's almost like this is part of the paradigm shift that Jesus needs us to make, that kind of this life is really just setting the scene for the life to come. So in verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, which sounds like a strange thing for us, uh, and yet it was just a normal description of someone going to heaven in the culture of the day. When the rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, a brief aside at this point, when we're reading the parables of Jesus, we need to let Jesus make the big point that he's making and not get distracted by tangents along the way. So, for example, here, Jesus is he's telling a story to illustrate a point. He's not recounting a historical event. 
So this isn't the passage to go to to work out whether people in hell can talk to people in heaven and so on and so forth. Jesus is just engaging with the way that the people of his time in the audience there kind of thought about the afterlife. But Jesus tells this story in such a way to set a scene for the conversation that really is what he's focusing in on. Let's read it together. Father Abraham, the rich man, calls out in verse 24, Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Do you see how arrogant the rich man is? Like even in death, he still thinks he's really important. Important enough to call out to Abraham as his father as if this guy's family tree traces back far enough and that's what would make him important. He, he still thinks he's important enough that Lazarus can be ordered around as his servant and what's this weird thing of dip finger and touch my tongue gross. But Abraham's reply in verse 25 sums up actually a really important element that this man hasn't got that the life that we now live impacts on the life that is to come. Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And so there's a sense in which the rich man is now reaping what he has sown in his selfishness. He got his good things in this life, and now he's facing the consequences for that. But even there, we've got to be a little bit careful that we don't read too much into this. See, this isn't a parable teaching us the doctrine of salvation by poverty, for example, as if all poor people automatically go to heaven and all rich people automatically go to hell. Just within the story itself, we can see that Abraham is pictured in heaven and we know from the Old Testament that Abraham was a very wealthy man. And the first half of chapter 16, well, Jesus didn't condemn wealth, but he spoke deeper than that, didn't he? He took us to the heart of the matter and a perspective on wealth that actually reflects eternity, which is where the rich man in this story seems to have gone so badly wrong as he lived this life as if that's all there was. And at this point, I do think it is helpful to pause and to note an important, kind of really practical point of application for us. It seems very deliberate that Luke has highlighted that Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees who loved money and were sneering at Jesus. Because, you see, throughout the law and the prophets that Jesus pointed them to, God is clear that he calls his people to care for the poor and the vulnerable. And so the massive announcement that the kingdom of God has come, well, that, that doesn't actually change God's heart for all people. And it continues to challenge us in this parable to reflect on how we value people. Do we value our equivalent of the purple clothing and the, the luxurious lifestyle more than the present needs of those on our doorstep? But I think this parable is actually more than just a nudge to, to get out your checkbook figuratively. Who has a checkbook these days? But you get my point. It's not just sort of nudging us to, oh, well, I'll give some more to charity, I suppose. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? God knows your hearts. And then he tells this parable. I think one of the really practical things for us to reflect on is, is what I value in my heart. And in particular, how do I view other people? Do I esteem those like the rich man in, in their luxury with a house big enough to have a gate so that a poor person can be laid there? Or do I value the poor person given the honour of being named? I think 
as we come to this parable, that point of application at least, we must be very careful we don't sneer at. But as important as it is, it's not actually the main point that Jesus is making. Because as we follow this story through, it's verse 26 that really is the pivot point. The situation that the rich man faces at this point cannot be undone, Abraham tells him. There's a vast chasm, there's, there's no crossing over, there's no second chance, there's no going back, no offer of further relief. And that's what finally shifts the rich man's perspective. Because did you see that now it's the rich man who's begging? And having accepted his own fate, he's begging on behalf of his family. Verse 27, he says, Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham is blunt. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. You see, you see what Jesus is doing here? And through the words of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Jesus is looking directly at the Pharisees who have Moses and the prophets and yet they have hardened their hearts towards God. They've become lovers of money who are, who are more interested in looking good, justifying themselves before other people than what God sees in their heart. But Jesus still has, has more to say to people who, like them and like the rich man, still haven't got it. No, Father Abraham, the rich man responds in verse 30, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that's the end of the story. It, we're just left hanging. And I think that kind of signals for us that this is, this is the big challenge that Jesus is just leaving the Pharisees hanging with, the big idea that we, we need to pay attention to. The big idea that God has always spoken with power, but people have always hardened their hearts against him. The words of the Old Testament, they, they testify God's power to create, his power to save, his power to, to guide our hearts and to shape our lives. And through this parable, Jesus looked at the Pharisees, these religious guys with their legalistic attention to detail, and he points out that they have failed to truly listen, to humble their hearts and listen to God's word. So Jesus comments on divorce. They were taking them to the law. Uh, his, his parable about the rich man and Lazarus was an illustration from life. And in both respects, he looked at them squarely and he challenged them to submit to God's kingdom that was, that was, that was right there in their midst with him as their king before it is too late. And as the parable's just kind of left hanging, we're, we're kind of left reflecting on it, I think we're being invited to kind of imagine all of the objections they might, they might have come up with as they sneered at him. And in fact, I wonder what some of the objections that you might come up with and how Jesus might respond to them. Let's road test a few. But Jesus, you might say, but Jesus, the Bible has so many words what I need to believe is something really tangible. I need a sign. I need something supernatural right here in front of me. My child, he might respond, if you will not listen to Moses and the prophets, you won't even be convinced if someone rises from the dead right in front of you. 
but Jesus, can't you cut me some slack? How was I supposed to know that it was this serious? Oh, I thought I was just enjoying the good things of life. That, that's okay, isn't it? My child, if only you will listen to Moses and the prophets, then you will see what kind of heart I have and what kind of heart I long for you to have. Oh, but Jesus, do, do you really expect me to shape my whole life around you? I mean, let's be honest, between you and me, you're not a very impressive king. My child, all the scriptures testify about me. Will you set aside your sneering and humbly listen to them? Now, friends, I don't know. that They may or may not be your objections, but I wonder how Jesus might be challenging the things that, that do roll around in your mind in response to this parable. Because, friends, the law and the prophets testify to Jesus and who he is and why we need him and what he's done for us. And indeed, they point us forward to the reality that, that he will return to judge the living and the dead, to set things to right. And through this parable, Jesus challenges us all that there will be a time when it's too late, when there is no going back. So tonight we should be thinking, well, what, what, do we, what do I do with all of this? Well, friends, if you're someone exploring who Jesus is, we are so delighted you are here. And I really just want to encourage you to, to actually listen to the Bible, to read it, to get into it with a real humility. The Bible makes sense. It fits together. It fits together as a really cohesive testimony to Jesus and your need of him. But as Jesus implies here, if, if you won't listen to the Bible, then it wouldn't matter what sign you asked for. It would never be enough. So let me encourage you to, to really genuinely engage with what God is saying in the Bible, to wrestle with it, to humbly come and, and try and get your head around it. And, and we would love to help you in that if we can be of any assistance at all. But what if you're someone who already knows Jesus? Well, I think there's actually a really profound warning in this. To beware of your hard heart, beware of the, the Pharisaic sneering, that, that tendency to want to look good on the outside, you know, pretend, present a good church-going kind of Christian character, and yet to allow your heart to privately wander far from God. We're walking with Jesus towards Jerusalem in this part of Luke's gospel and it's all about discipleship what it looks like and and we're seeing that discipleship means submitting all of your life to God's word about his son I mean this chapter chapter 16 it's hit on that really tender point of of our money and our finances and and thinking that through in light of eternity but honestly I think it could have actually hit down on so many issues where we might try and present one way to people but feel very differently in our hearts towards God whether that be around our sexuality or our, our temper and and, and and anger or or, or greed all sorts of things where we justify ourselves before others but our heart remains hard towards God. So I think actually the application is very similar to us for us all. Whether you're exploring Jesus for the first time or walking with him daily, disciples of Jesus put aside their sneering and we need to listen to God with humility, longing for him to do his work in our hearts, to, to make our hearts more like his so that we might actually live this life in light of his eternal kingdom. So will you pray with me? Loving Father, tonight 
We want to repent for the ways that we sneer at your King, the Lord Jesus. Those times when we seek to impress others, but kind of privately, we're, we're thumbing our noses at him. We're making him out to be trivial in our lives, in the way that we, we think about ourselves and other people in this world. Father, forgive us. And teach us to live in light of your incredible grace to us in Jesus. When he came as the king who deserves to be worshipped, and he, yet he was kind. He, he came with a warning. He came with a call to repent so that we might enjoy his forgiveness. And so by your spirit, we ask that you would enable us to live this coming year in light of Jesus' glorious eternity. And in his name we pray. Amen.